Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, as we continue our work through the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Acts chapter 13, 1 through 3 says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word and we're asking that you would work in each of us individually and all of us collectively to understand and embrace your word. Lord, we want to gain a better understanding of you and your will, but we also want to know what we're supposed to do now in response. So we pray that you would teach us, convict us, and encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen. There's some things that uh, churches don't like talking about because they're uncomfortable or awkward, right? Abortion is one of those things that some churches just don't want to talk about because, well, there's different reasons, right? Some churches are, let's just say they're sensitive to many of the people in the congregation who have, have a connection to abortion and uh, in their lives or in their families. And so they're, they're, they're trying to be sensitive and so they just don't want to talk about it. Other people are afraid. Some churches are just afraid because it's a hot button topic. And if you start to articulate what the Bible says about things like abortion, saying that this is, this is a sin, it's the taking of a human life, that, that this could put you at odds with people that you, you want to contribute to the financial success of your ministry. There are different reasons, right? Some people have good motives for avoiding topics. Some people have bad motives. In the end, we shouldn't be avoiding topics when the Bible addresses them. But then there are those things that churches avoid talking about for no good reason. I can't figure it out. Like fasting. The church doesn't talk about fasting. The church talks about intermittent fasting all the time. Like everybody talks about intermittent fasting. That's the thing. Intermittent fasting, bro, are you intermittent fasting? I'm intermittent fasting. I don't eat until 1 p.m. I don't, I eat from 1 p.m. I stop at 8 p.m. and I don't eat again. Like that's my thing. That's my, so yeah, that's, we talk about that. Everybody has an opinion on that. But in terms of fasting, biblical fasting, we don't tend to talk much about it. We seem to avoid the subject. And I think the reason that we avoid the subject is less of a theological conviction and more of a spiritual problem. I think that we don't talk much about fasting in part because we don't understand it. But I even think the reason we don't understand it is because we have lost sight of the importance and the value of fasting. I think that many of us, and I'm speaking broadly here of Christians in America in particular, I think we have forgotten the use of fasting. So here's the principle that I want us to take away today as we look at Acts 13, 1 through 3. There's a lot of things going on here, but I want us to, I want us to focus on this, that prayer and fasting are the forgotten means of seeking and seeing God. I think prayer and fasting are largely forgotten, the forgotten means of seeking and seeing God. Uh, so let me just say this. Uh, you might be wondering, seeing God? Are we going to see God? No, no, it's a figure of speech. We're not going to see God. No one sees the Lord and lives, right? It's a, it's a figure of speech. I'll unpack what it means. 
but those who want to seek and see the Lord will believe in the value of both prayer and fasting. So in this passage, we're gonna just see a few things, right? We're gonna note in verse one that there was leadership in the church. I think that's really important. We're gonna see the commissioning by the church of individuals set apart for missions and ministry. But then I want us to focus more on prayer and fasting in the church, all right? So first, the leaders in the church, we see it in verse one. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, and then there's a list of five names. Now Antioch is 300 miles north of Jerusalem. It's a big city. It's like the city, the metropolis of of, of Syria. And so uh, there was a lot going on there culturally, politically, financially. There's just a whole lot going on. And we've learned like through reading the book of Acts that Barnabas went up there and a church was planted and it's robust. They've appointed elders, things are happening and it's going to become a center from which missions work begins to flow. So that's Antioch. And at the church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. So there was leadership there. And also some of this leadership is unique to the apostolic area. Like there were prophets. Now, when you talk about prophets in any formal sense in the Bible, what we're talking about are people that are not only called by God to teach or preach his word. These are people who are called by God, but are also given revelations. They are giving, they are given the, the knowledge of God that has not yet been revealed. It's revealed to them and they proclaim it to others. Sometimes this is a foretelling of what's about to happen. Oftentimes judgment is coming. You better repent, right? Because on this date, the judgment will land and you will be held accountable. Uh, other times it's, uh, it's merely the, the teaching of truth and clarifying truth that has not yet been as revealed as they are. But when prophets were teaching and preaching, they did so inerrantly. There was no corruption in their doctrine or in their teaching. Both, imagine this, their doctrine and their application was pristine, impossible for it to have error as a function in that role. I wish I had that. I don't. I'm not a prophet in any formal sense. See, these prophets... In the Old Testament and in the New, there were some differences, but essentially they were the same things. They were these these voices of God for the people who communicated the revelations that God had given to them. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verse 28, we read about these, th- this gift and, and those who are called to function in this way. 1 Corinthians 12, 28 says... Oh, starting 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. So you could see that there was a, 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 a sort of an authority, a hierarchy of authority in this early church. We had apostles, and we've already discussed this, that apostles are those that had interacted with Christ post-resurrection and had been called by him to become this foundation of the New Testament church through their teaching, their ministry, and their preaching. So we have the, the apostles, but we also have prophets. These prophets are those who preach without error. They receive revelation from the Lord. Prophets and apostles are, prophets and apostles are sometimes the same thing. Sometimes they're separated out. But then there are teachers like we have in our passage here, prophets and teachers. Teachers are those people that are called by God to preach the word of God or to preach the revelation of God that has already been revealed. So let's be really, really clear here. You all know if you're, if you're from Redeemer, but in case you're new, I am no prophet. And no preacher that will be on this stage will be a prophet in that formal sense. That's not the case. We can make mistakes. We do make mistakes. 
We get some things wrong. We have to be corrected. That happens with any fallible human teacher. And these teachers and prophets functioned, right, in, in that role of, of elder among, among the church there in Antioch. And then we have these, these listed, right, these, these prophets, these teachers. We have five people listed, Barnabas, Simeon, and Lucius, Menaean, and Saul. So just, just to kind of explain each, you, most of you, if you've been with us, you know who Barnabas is. Barnabas was sent from Jerusalem up to Antioch to establish the church, to preach the gospel, to reach the lost, to make disciples. So that's, that's Barnabas. Then we have Simeon and Lucius. Simeon and Lucius were both from North Africa. So we have, we already can see the diversity of this crew here. So we have Africans, uh, Simeon and Lucius. We have Barnabas. We have Menaean. Now, Menaean is different. His name means comforter. Not that it's that relevant. I just note it. Uh, his name is comforter. And he, uh, he seems to be a person that had a lot of influence, a lot of social credit, credit right? He, he was respected. He was known. And he probably had some influence in the culture of his day. And then, of course, there's Saul. Saul, who we know was the persecutor of the church, was converted by God and now is a preacher for the church. So that's, uh, that's Saul, who we know as the Apostle Paul. These are the five that they have in mind. And it's just helpful. I like, I like when we're reading the book of Acts, we can see that wherever there is a church, there is leadership in the church. Wherever God has, has established a, a people that are coming together under word and sacrament, there are leaders there. Here, of course, in the apostolic era, we have both prophets and teachers, apostles and prophets. But, but today we have elders and deacons. In Titus, in fact, in, in, in Titus 1.5, the apostle Paul tells the pastor Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Passages like this is why we understand that local churches ought to have a plurality of elders, not just one. Southern Baptists are famous for having one pastor slash elder and then deacons. And in many of those churches, that pastor acts as the Pope who calls all the shots because he's the elder. He has the highest office and the deacons have to basically do what he says. Other times, the pastor who is the lone elder doesn't really function as an elder at all. He functions as a preacher boy and the deacons function as elders who rule over him. What we see in scripture though is that every local church ought to have a plurality of elders and deacons and those elders should be functioning in what we call parity, meaning that one elder has the same level of authority as another elder. There is no, my title is lead pastor, but that doesn't mean I have more uh, authority than any other elder. I have the same level of authority as a lay elder or a volunteer elder. Well, the same. So every church should have a plurality of elders that serve the church, preaching the truth, praying for the church, making disciples, uh, you know, leading, governing, serving, shepherding. And we see it here. And it's good to know, like as Baptists, the way we like to say it is, at least the way I like to say it is, every local church and Redeemer in particular needs to be ordered by the word of God. We need to be ordered by the word. We need to be led by elders and we need to be governed by the congregation. Meaning that in some cases, the congregation is the final step, the final say, right? So if you're here at Redeemer, you know, like, well, the, 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 it's the congregation that affirms budget. It's the congregation that, that says yes or no to leadership. It's the congregation that says yes or no to membership, even church discipline. 
So that's what we see happening early on. It's already, it's already working the way that it's supposed to. Not perfectly, but it is working early on here in the first century. So there was leadership at this church, and they ran into a situation where they needed to commission specific individuals to go and to carry out a mission, a, a, a church planting mission, what we call missions. We needed missionaries to go and to preach the gospel into other lands. And they didn't know what to do. They were like, oh, we've got, we've got, like, here's five guys. How do we pick two of these guys? They're all great. They're awesome. We love them all. How, how do we know how we're supposed to go about it? And so that's the context in which we're reading about them being a church that, that is worshiping and fasting. See verse two? While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart Barnabas and Saul. So it's a worshiping church. So let's just take note of that. Here we have a church First century church doing what churches are supposed to do. They're worshiping. This is their regular MO. This is their standard operating procedure. They worshiped formally and informally. This means that the church would gather together on the Lord's day. That's Sunday, the first day of the week for them. They would gather on the Lord's day, the day that Jesus rose from the dead every week. And what would they do? They would read the word of God. They would teach or expound the word of God. They would pray. They would sing songs and hymns and spiritual, spiritual songs. They, they would take up an offering to, to continue the, the work of, of making disciples. They did all of these things every Sunday when all of the church gathered together. But they also continued to worship in each other's homes throughout the week. Right? Think Acts 2.42. Right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. By the way, this is why we have organized ourselves, put things in order, right? Like Paul says, the way that we have at Redeemer. We want Sunday mornings to be the most significant event of your week. We want the Sunday gathering to be the most important event of every week. And that's not, that doesn't mean that it's going to be a show or that it's going to be the spectacular production. What it means that it is the most spiritually significant and therefore most important thing that we will encounter in any given week where we hear God's word read and proclaimed, where we receive grace through the preaching of the word, the hearing of it. We, we, we observe the Lord's Supper we fellowship together, we confess with one voice that Jesus is Lord. That is so significant. But it's also incredibly important for us to be in each other's lives, involved in each other's lives. That's why when we started, we were, we were careful to, instead of starting a Sunday school ministry right away, we wanted to start a small group ministry where we would get in each other's homes during the week for prayer, for accountability, for encouragement, for exhortation because we want to have the same experience that we see exemplified in the book of Acts. So here we have a church, they are worshiping together and they are fasting. Now, when you, when you see the, the, the church in Acts fasting, you should know this, that fasting for Christians in the first century was normal, but it wasn't regular. That's the difference. It's normal, but it wasn't regular. It was understood to be a habit that the church engaged in from time to time when needed, when necessary, but it wasn't a weekly habit early on for these believers. In fact, fasting, really, when you read the biblical accounts, fasting really seems to come to the front of a story when there is great need or great danger 
when people are seeking God earnestly, intensely seeking his wisdom or his provision. And sometimes there was fasting involved when people had sinned and gone in such a bad direction that there had been real devastation. And so it was a, it was a returning to the Lord and seeking revival. And you see fasting in the Bible. It's, it's not hard to see. I and mean, if you're just reading it, you'll see it. The big ones stand out, right? Moses fasted in the wilderness for 40 days. Jesus, when his ministry begins, right before he starts, after he's baptized, what does he do? He goes into the wilderness, led by the Holy Spirit, and he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. We see in the Old Testament the, the, the people of Israel fasting. For example, when they're coming out of exile, that is, people from Israel have been taken captive by an invading, invading army. They have been taken out, right, into Babylon. And through a whole series of circumstances, political and military, they have the opportunity now to return home to Israel. But to go home, they have to go with very little resources and no protection. So there's great danger. They're very afraid. And so they call for a fast, prayer and fasting to protect us as we go. Significant, serious events that require prolonged and sustained prayer and dependency on God. That's when fasting happens. And you see it happening in the church here. As the church is expanding and growing, as the mission is expanding, as they're looking to raise up missionaries and they don't know what to do, they start to seek the Lord earnestly and they fast and it's while they're doing this that the holy spirit speaks holy spirit speaks what does that mean holy spirit told them right that's what it said holy spirit said set apart for me barnabas and saul now some people think like well it means the holy spirit spoke like he like he spoke audibly and they heard it and they're like all right it, now we know it's Barnabas and Saul because we literally heard the Spirit say, and that's certainly a possibility. But I tend to think that the certainty with which they made this, uh, this uh, uh, completed this commissioning of Barnabas and Saul was not because they heard a literal voice, though that's possible. I tend to think that what God gave them was wisdom and clarity throughout the entire church about who should go. I think what happened is, is as they were praying and as they were fasting, God gave them conviction and wisdom. And if you've been a Christian long enough, if you've been praying for that, you've probably experienced that yourself when you're praying, asking God, I don't know what to do. I don't know how I'm supposed to handle this. And God works through the ministry of his word and the collective counsel that you have around you to bring you to a place where you're like, now I know what to do. Some people are uncomfortable with the whole idea of saying like, well, that's like God talking to you. But here's the thing. There are a lot of Christians out there and I have friends who will talk like this. They're like, I was driving in my car and all of a sudden, like God spoke to me and God told me. And what they begin to tell me really means God brought to their mind something in his word and really applied it to their heart. And they were just overwhelmingly convinced, convicted, encouraged, lifted up, whatever. And they're like, oh, wow, God spoke to me. That's fine. I, like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna push back on somebody who says the words, God spoke to me in that. Uh, that's, that's, they're, 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 they're not wrong. God absolutely did work in their life in that moment. He brought the word, to, the word of God uh, into their consciousness, right? And they, they learned something there. That's wonderful. But some people are uptight, like me, naturally uptight about a lot of things. And I'm uptight about saying God spoke to me. I don't say it. I used to say it, I don't say it. 
But I, I have the same experience where I'll be driving in my car or I'll be chilling on the back porch. I'll be hanging out with friends. And all of a sudden, God brings something to mind and I have absolute clarity on it. It's, it's something from the scripture and it's right there. And it's like, it's like, yes, God is speaking because this is called God's word. If you want to hear God speak, open up this book. And when he helps you to understand it, it's like you hear his voice so clearly, if not audibly. So whether it's a, a, a booming voice from heaven or a whisper, or whether it is this, this conviction and wisdom that they gain through prayer and fasting, they are certain. They know what to do. The church is unified in their direction. They know what's next. Barnabas and Saul are going to be the ones that are set, set apart and then sent out. You see that in verse Verse three, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So here we have this formal recognition and commissioning of two people to now go as sent ones. Really, they are from this point on considered and called apostles. Before this, they're not called apostles. But at this point now, they 14, 14, Acts 14, 14 is where you see it. Now they're called apostles and they're sent. They're sent to the Gentiles to preach the good news, to make disciples, and to plant churches. It's amazing. It's not easy. I mean, if, if you were with us when we, when we planted our very first church, Grace, or if you were with us when we replanted as Redeemer, or if you've been a part of any church plant that we have sent out, you know how incredibly difficult and overwhelming it is. It's not easy. They don't always succeed in the ways that you want. That's why we are so dependent upon God in those moments. And so we pray and fast. And that's what I want us to consider. Prayer and fasting in the church. Like I said, I think prayer and fasting is the forgotten. They are the forgotten means of seeking and seeing God. And what you'll notice is when you're reading the Bible and you, you see a case, a, these cases of, of fasting, fasting is always accompanied by prayer. Prayer is not always accompanied by fasting. You can pray without fasting, but you really can't fast without praying. It just, it's not a thing. See, because fasting is not just not eating. It's not fasting if you just don't eat, right? I'll sometimes go a whole day without eating until I get home. And then I eat like 5,000 calories, uh, starting with those, uh, those flaming Hot Cheetos. And I just kind of work my way through whatever, whatever I can find. It, like, that's not fasting, okay? Fasting biblically is, is really, it's, it's a denial, it's self-denial. But it's more specifically, it's denying oneself food, primarily. It's denying oneself food for the purpose of seeking God, his wisdom, and his grace. That's what it is. It's always accompanied by prayer. And I think we need to be clear about what fasting is because with, when Christians do talk about fasting today, they have such a broad definition, I think it, it's, it sort of loses its, its force. Because like we'll say, like, I'm going to fast from social media. Good, you probably should. Social media is dumb. I mean, I love it. But I, mean, I, I, I should probably fast. So let's say, oh, you can fast from social media or I'm going to fast from, from chocolate. I'm going to fast from chocolate. I'm going to give it up and just, uh, just to, to devote myself to the Lord by denying chocolate. Um, some people will give up a recreation or a, ha a hobby, whatever it is. And let me just say on the front end, denying yourself those things for any good reason is awesome. Do that. It's just, it's not fasting. It's not what it is. It's self-denial, which is good. 
but, it's, but fasting biblically is different. It's more sober, it's more serious because denying yourself chocolate will not end in your death. Denying yourself food will. So let's be clear, fasting, biblically speaking, is denying yourself food for the purpose of seeking the Lord in prayer over a sustained period of time, whether that is 24 hours or a week or whatever. That's really what fasting is. And fasting, fasting isn't really commanded in scripture as much as it is simply expected. And take note, fasting is not Christian. Fasting is not Jewish. Fasting is everything, every religion, not every. Most religions practice fasting. Fasting is something that the people of God utilized. With divine direction, they leveraged it for divine purposes. The, the, the format of the, of the Ten Commandments and the laws that were given, that format, those law treaties, that wasn't invented uh, by Moses. It wasn't invented by God on the spot. That form had been in place for a long period of time. And so it is with fasting. It's a habit that's used by seculars, uh, secular people, atheists, uh, and various religions. So it's not uniquely Christian but it can be done in a Christian way. So while it was not really so much commanded, it was understood to be a part of a life of devotion to God. But it's not regular. It may be a, a normal part, or at least it should be a normal part of our lives, but regular, not so much. Really, I mean, there's, I'm not a fan of so this is me talking, not the Lord. Uh, I am not a fan of uh, scheduled fasting on a weekly basis or a monthly basis. I don't think it's wrong. I don't think it's sin. But the reason I don't like it, the main reason I don't like it is be, not, well, because to some people it becomes a law. But I don't like it because there are seasons when you should not fast. There are seasons when you shouldn't. Right? It's not always good to fast. For example... Jesus didn't fast. And when his disciples were with him, they didn't fast. In fact, it annoyed people. It annoyed the disciples of John. You read about it in, in Matthew 9. In Matthew 9, 14, the disciples of John came to Jesus saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast? By the way, we fast. <laughs> nice, nice flex. But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. The point being is that Jesus wasn't about that fasting life right here because he was celebrating, right now, he was celebrating with his disciples the arrival of the kingdom. This was a celebration. I mean, Jesus fasted in the wilderness to kick off his ministry, but now he's got his disciples. He's preaching the gospels. He's healing people of disease. He's casting out demons. So now he's not fasting. He's, he's intentionally avoiding fasting because the Savior has arrived. The Son of Man is here. The blind are seeing. The deaf are hearing. The lame are walking. And people are being forgiven of their sins. It's party time. The kingdom has come celebration time it's not a time for fasting but Jesus is very quick to go however I'm gonna go and when I go then yes fasting is going to be a part a normal part if not regular of my disciples so fasting 
is this denial of, of food for a period of time where we are concentrated and intensely seeking the Lord in prayer. Now, what is the point of this? Why do we fast, right? Well, it's typically because there is a need, a need of some kind, restoration, provision, wisdom, grace, right? Fundamentally, we need God's grace. We're in a situation where it is serious enough and we are sober-minded enough to say, we're gonna have to put everything aside here and be extra focused on the Lord. And so what do we do? We withhold food from ourselves for a period of time. And during that time, we are praying. We are praying during mealtime, yes, but we're also praying, finding other opportunities to seek the Lord and to pray as we have the opportunity. It's like, we fast when we are desperate for God's grace and provision. And so we fast and what happens? God responds. But not always in the ways that we might want or anticipate. Let me, let me give you one more passage. This will be the final passage. Uh, and that's uh, Matthew chapter uh, 6. Matthew 6, starting in verse 16. Jesus says, and when you fast, see, there it is. It's assumed that the disciples are going to fast. He says this in the same way that he says, pray when you pray. He says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So let's, let's, let's take note of, of a couple of things here, right? So first of all, when you fast, like when it comes time for you to actually do this, don't make it about yourself. Don't make it into a big show. Your fasting is not a performance for a general audience. It's not even a performance for God. It is a concentrated effort at seeking God's help or grace. So he says, don't make a show. Don't look all gloomy. Don't let everybody know like, oh boy. You know, don't start wearing bigger shirts so that you look skinny. Like, oh man. I've been fasting for a while. It's been really rough. Like how long, man? Like seven days. Like, whoa. It's not about that. The Pharisees and the hypocrites prayed to be seen. They fasted to be seen. They didn't pray and fast to see God, right? They sought the approval of others instead of seeking the grace that they needed. It's a totally different approach. They were doing it out of vain religious activity. They weren't really seeking God. So Jesus says, don't do it. By the way, not hating I'm not hating, but this is one of the reasons that Redeemer does not observe Ash Wednesday, right? Not only the fact that historically Baptists don't, and this is one of the reasons why. One of the reasons why we don't is because uh, while we think, or at least we should think that fasting is valuable and important, that we shouldn't draw attention to ourselves when we do it, according to Jesus, so for my friends, and I have many friends that, that, that practice uh, Ash Wednesday in their churches, I love them, I'm not mad at them, I don't think the judgment's gonna fall in their church or anything like that, but I don't think drawing attention to ourselves as people who are fasting really falls in line with what Jesus is teaching us here. It's not wrong for people to know you're fasting, it's not. If, if, if you're fasting collectively with your church, you all know that you're fasting. But to draw attention to yourself about your fasting seems out of step with what Jesus is saying here because his whole point is, hey, listen, uh, keep it to yourself. Anoint your head, look good. 
Look like you just had a great meal, right? Like, come on out and go about your business. So Jesus says, don't fast like the hypocrites, but instead wash your face. Like, look like you normally look. Look your best even, right? Because then you're doing it for God. You're doing it in secret, really, right? And what God sees you doing, he will reward. He will reward. So what is it that God gives? Does this mean that God's going to give us exactly what we're asking for? You already know the answer to that. He just doesn't do that. Sometimes he does. I mean, sometimes God gives you exactly what you need and exactly what you ask for. But sometimes, I find in my life, oftentimes he does not give me what I'm asking for specifically. And if he does, he makes me wait a super long time. But he, uh, he, he gives us what we really need. And sometimes what we need is not what we ask for or even what we think we need. Sometimes what we need is more grace to endure the difficulty Now, God does sometimes give you exactly what you need, especially if you're praying for things like wisdom, right? God grants wisdom to those who ask for it and fasting becomes a part of it. So what's the point in fasting? The point is, is here's what you gain out of fasting. If you've ever fasted, you've experienced this. When you fast, even if it's just for 24 hours, right? For if it's it's just from like, you know, one meal to, to the next day. When you're properly fasting, you begin to learn and experience greater or deeper dependency on God. You will experience it because what you are denying yourself is not TikTok, but food. You need food to live, okay? And when you deny yourself food to live and you actually experience hunger pains, but in that process, you're like, oh, wow, these hunger pains are a reminder that I'm seeking the Lord and I'm learning that, wow, if God doesn't provide for me food, um, I will not live on this planet. But you're also learning that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So we live according to God's grace. You begin to learn that. So you learn dependency on God in the midst of fasting, which is super valuable for us. You also learn contentment because you learn, right, practically, you don't even, you might not even have thought about it specifically or explicitly, but when you deny yourself food, you're going without something that you not only want but you absolutely need so you learn contentment in that when the air conditioner goes out you're like well that's annoying but all right I've gone without food I can go without AC for a bit right it's like you learn contentment in your situation in your in your very circumstances because you know that God will give you the grace that you need to endure whether it's a loss of food or the loss of your car keys that you have no explanation for and you want to start raging around the house and blaming everybody else for the fact that you can't find your keys. You learn dependency, you learn contentment, you gain wisdom. See, in this time frame where you are, you are concentrated in your devotion, in your seeking, you are persevering in this, God gives you the wisdom that you need. He gives you the grace that you're asking for, not the specific example of grace that you may want but he gives you the grace that you're asking for because that's what all prayer is that's what all fasting is it's a seeking of God to give us what we don't deserve it's undeserved and unearnable kindness and favor and blessing and he gives it every time in one way or another so when we fast and that should be a win there should be times when you as an individual will fast it may be three times in your life it might be 30 times I don't know it might be 300 times the point is is when you sense a need to fast because the situation is serious or uh, your circumstances are dire 
when you are in desperate need for God to act and you don't know what else to do and you say, it's time to, it's time to fast and pray. Let me encourage you, do it humbly, which means quietly. It doesn't mean an absolute secret. You can talk to your friends about it, of course. You can share this with your church family. You can ask for accountability. You know what it's about. It's about the condition of your heart. But you do it humbly, right? Meaning like I'm in a posture to wait on the Lord and to receive his help. I'm going to do it quietly in that context. You should also do it not only uh, in humility, but also in faith, right? This is not a religious performance, right? This is an actual, real seeking of God's grace for your life. So you do it in faith. You're actually praying. And that'll be number three. Do it with prayer. There is no fasting without prayer. So use all of the means possible, right? Use the Valley of Vision prayer guide, like incorporate that into your day. Set an alarm to go off at a certain time every day and that's when you read one of those prayers. Get a prayer journal, pray with your friends, have people call you. If you have people fasting with you, let's say, hey, let's have an agreed upon time that we're gonna meet or we're gonna call and we're going to pray together. But leverage every form of prayer that you can for this intense, focused period of time when you're seeking God's grace. But fundamentally, you do it when it's needed. And that's going to vary from family to family and church to church. I think the reason we forget about fasting is not so much because we forget or don't know enough about it. I think the reason we forget about fasting is because we have already forgotten about prayer. I think if you really haven't forgotten about prayer, you don't really forget about fasting. And of course, listen, I'm not talking about, about you guys not praying or me not praying. I think, I think you guys pray. I know you pray earnestly. You persevere in prayer. But in general, I think Christians have lost sight or have forgotten about the value and the power of focused, sustained, ongoing, intense prayer. We all pray. Pray for our meals. 10 seconds, 15 seconds. Pray before we go to bed at night, maybe. 30 seconds tops, right? Like, I know how a lot of people pray. Like, I've, I've seen it. Now, some of you have devotional times and, and dedicated times when you're going to pray. But I'm talking about that, that prolonged, earnest seeking of God in those situations that really require this, like where you're just desperate. That's the issue. Fasting happens when you're desperate. And prayer that is prolonged is supposed to be something that we are familiar with. Short prayers are awesome. You see them in Scripture. Lengthy prayers are good. Times of period when you're praying, sometimes you're not even using words when you're praying, you're really just waiting and meditating on the Lord and seeking him. But these prolonged focused times of intense prayer, like Jesus talks about that. You ever, you ever, have you noticed that you know, Jesus uses a number of different examples to encourage people to pray continuously and to not stop, to keep going, to press in? He uses, he uses these worldly analogies like, well, the, the judge who is crooked isn't going to listen to this woman who needs help, so she's just going to keep bothering him. She's going to keep going back and bothering him and bothering him. She's not going to stop. She's going to persevere. She's hurting. She's being neglected, but she's going to persevere until she finally gets what she needs. And Jesus says, that's how you're supposed to pray. The point isn't that God is unjust or, or doesn't hear us. The point is, is that we have to oftentimes persevere in prayer. And the reason most of us don't value persevering in prayer long form, long term, either, either for periods of time or just persistently over a certain issue is because a lot of us believe that, oh, if I just, if, if I just pray, God will either do it. It's either yes or no. So I'm going to pray, hey, God, give me wisdom. 
Oh, you didn't give me, okay, I guess he's not, I guess the answer is no, he's not gonna give me wisdom. We walk away. And really, oftentimes, I've experienced this in my life, and we've seen it in scripture, God will have you pray persistently, consistently over something for a period of time. Think about the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, where he has this affliction and he's praying for a period of time. God, take it away, take it away, take it away. And after he perseveres through all of that, God says, no, I'm not taking it away. Instead, I'm going to give you my grace. You see, he still got the reward in the midst of his praying. It wasn't what he wanted, but it was what he really needed. And we just give up too quick. We're like, oh, well, I prayed for it and it didn't happen, so it must be. No, sometimes God wants us to persevere so that we learn dependency on him, we learn resignation to his will, but we also then, when he does give us the very thing we're asking for, we are thankful, grateful. We've lost sight of this. Prayer is a means of grace. We need to see it as primary, not as a performance, but as primary. And fasting also is a means of grace for those that need it. So when I say that prayer and fasting are the forgotten means of seeking and seeing God, I mean that if we will return to a discipline that God has encouraged, that of fasting, when it's needed, we will see God. Not literally. What it means to see God is to see God at work, to see God at work in your life, to see his fingerprints on all of the circumstances in your life. It is to hear his voice in his word, right? It is to see God is to have such a clear understanding of how God is at work in your life that you are for all intents and purposes seeing him do his thing. You see, it works. Prayer and fasting works, not because we're performing it well and, you know, fasting is a lamp and God is a genie and we we did it right, now he's got to obey us. That's not the point. The point is, is that we as Christians are in Christ. The moment you believed in Jesus, you were united to him in such a way that you can never be separated. God's love for you is eternal. Your sins have been forgiven. You are one with Jesus. And by prayer and fasting, We draw near to him. We get closer to Christ. He hears us when we pray. He hears us when we barely pray at all. But prayer and fasting is an opportunity for us to draw near and in doing so, we do find his grace. We can see him in our lives, answering and providing for us what we need to persevere in this life that God has called us to. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would teach us more about your word, more from your word. And Lord, maybe we don't expect to hear your voice audibly or to see you with our eyes, but we do want to hear you in your word and we do want to see you at work in our lives. So give us us the faith to, to experience that. We pray, Lord, that if we need to repent, that you would show us where, that we would be humbled but excited about the grace that you continue to show us. We ask, Lord, that we would be a people of prayer who pray together as well as separately and on our own, but that we would also know the value of fasting as a means of seeking you and seeing you. In Jesus' name, amen.